As a Muslim, Abdul Murray believed Islam was the truth until he asked and sought answers to the four greatest questions of life. Listen to his journey as he discovered which worldview presented the true and best answers to the major questions of life everyone must answer. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zukrin. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be interviewing former Muslim, now a born-again believer, Abdu Murray, about his conversion and the process it took. Here's part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where each week we present the compelling evidence for faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And with us today, we have a great guest, Abdu Murray. Abdu Murray received his Juris Doctorate from the University of Michigan, and he is president of the Embrace the Truth International, and is also a visiting professor of Christian thought and apologetics for the Josh McDowell Institute at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He has spoken across the United States and around the world and has been a featured guest on numerous national and international television and radio programs. He is also the author of The Apocalypse Later and a contributor to a number of books on apologetics and missiology. And he is also host of the Detroit area radio show Embrace the Truth with Abdu Murray. So, Abdu Murray, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be on. All right, we're talking about a new book you've produced, Grand Central questions. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that you grew up in an Islamic family, so tell us about your journey from Islam to Christ. Oh, sure, I'd love to. My favorite story, actually. Well, second favorite story. My first favorite story, of course, is the one that's told in the Bible, but my second one is what uh, Jesus did for me. I was raised in a Shiite Muslim home. The real word is Shia, but everyone says Shiite, and uh, as people know from the news, unfortunately, between the strife between the Sunnis and the Shiites, the Shiites tend to be a minority of the Muslim faith. It's mostly political differences between the Sunnis and the Shiites. Religiously speaking and, and theologically speaking, they're basically the same. But I was pretty serious about it. I, I, I took my Islam pretty seriously, and I had this crazy notion that people should believe true things and should not believe false things, and, uh, which is sort of out of fashion lately. But I thought that Christians needed to believe Islam. I thought it was true, and Christians needed to believe it. And I grew up in a suburban mostly white neighborhood in Detroit. And there were plenty of Muslims in Dearborn in the area near where I grew up, but in the suburban area that I grew up in, we were sort of the dash of pepper and the salt. Uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of people around me who weren't like me, so I was sort of exotic and cute in the sense that I was different. And of course, this was pre-9-11, before anybody knew anything about Islam. Well, I began to proselytize Christians because they were sort of low-hanging fruit. They were always around. So I thought that anybody who was white and who wasn't Jewish was automatically Christian. Uh, no matter how committed or not committed they were. So I began to tell them about Islam and how the Christianity itself was false. And I would challenge the veracity of the Bible, and I'd use people like Bart Ehrman and, and John Dominic Crossan and these folks to sort of poke holes in the Bible. And, and most Christians had no idea how to respond to anything I was saying. And I had this firm idea that the Christian God is not great, that because he's a trinity and because he would incarnate himself in a human being and then die on a cross and all these things, this made him not great. And the fundamental doctrine of Islam is God's greatness. So I thought I, I could show Christians how the, the God of Islam is truly great. 
And I was pretty good at this, actually. I knocked the faith out of, out of some Christians, and I got some of them to practice Islam, actually. And I say Christians, it's mostly nominal Christians I'm talking about here, who had no idea what they believed. But along the way, there were a couple of Christians who actually knew what they believed and why they believed it. And I found them to be annoying, because <laughs> they would respond to my <laughs> objections with objections of their own. And they weren't annoying in terms of their mannerisms. They were quite genteel, actually. But they knew what they were talking about. And I like to debate, but I like to win my debates. And these people were making it tough for me. So along the way, I began to see the, the credibility of the gospel, the evidence for the transmission of the Bible, for the why the Trinity actually makes sense of a God who is great. That the facts of the resurrection of Jesus from the, from the dead as a matter of actual history. I began to see all this. It took me nine years to finally see the truth here, and I realized something. The, the, answers, the answers weren't hard to find. The answers were just hard to accept. And I knew that it would cost me quite a bit if I became a Christian, so I delayed that for quite some time. But ultimately, I, I read Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and I saw that you know while I was still an enemy of God, God showed his love for his enemies, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then I realized something. If there's a God, then that's the kind of God there is. That he would be. He would be the kind of God who would give self-sacrificially, and that's a truly great God. And I gave my life to Christ then when I finally saw that, and I've been uh, dedicated to uh, preaching the gospel to anybody who will listen ever since. Fantastic. You know, a lot of people say that they have a misunderstanding of apologetics, that mm. you can't argue anyone into the kingdom or you can't reason with anyone into the kingdom mm. well that's a misnomer isn't it your testimony is testifies to the fact that if you approach an unbeliever properly as first peter three fifteen says with gentleness and respect and you give good reasonable answers and respond with good questions in return you can have a big impact on the person's life in bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And you see it in Scripture. You see Paul going into the synagogues and reasoning people, proving that Jesus is the Christ from the Scriptures. You see him using, the Bible even says, convincing arguments to win people to Christ. Now, I don't think that the arguments themselves are what did it, but I do think the Holy Spirit uses us to convey his message, the message of the Bible, through the use of arguments. One of the, my favorite passages now in Scripture to talk about apologetics itself, actually, the word apologetics doesn't appear in this passage, but in Colossians 4, verses 5 to 6, Paul tells us to always be careful with how we walk with outsiders and making the best use of the time, and letting our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. And then he says something interesting. He says, always being careful how we answer each person. It isn't just questions we answer, it's people we answer, because people have questions, and people need answers. Questions don't need answers. People who have questions need answers. And when we are sensitive, as you've just explained so, so well, when we're sensitive to their needs and to what they need as, as the truth that they're looking for, not a, a relativistic truth, but what will appeal to them, the Holy Spirit will, I think, enliven it to our hearts, and we can reach them by giving them sound reasons that will appeal to their minds and their hearts. That was well stated. You know, as a Muslim, what were some of the arguments or evidences that really impacted you? Mm. Well, it first began with, and I document this actually in the book, in the section on Islam, the basis essentially for me was God's greatness. Muslims have a fundamental doctrine called takbir, spelled T-A-K-B-I-R, but it, it, it basically is, is the, the fundamental doctrine of God's greatness, 
we hear this word all the time. You, you see it in the media. People say, Allahu Akbar. You know, we always hear this in the media, and unfortunately, whenever the media shows it, something explodes. But it's not, <laughs> right. really, a, it's not really a terrorist chant. It really isn't. Muslims of every stripe, both the radicals, but also the nominal and the moderates and those who just want to get along in life and, and meet their neighbors and just have kids and have a career and, and you know, pass away happy, they say Allahu Akbar all the time, too. It literally means God is greater. It's a blessing to say it for a Muslim, and it's also sort of a prayer at the same time. But it's fundamental to Islamic ideas, this God, idea of God's greatness. So I started out thinking, thinking that every one of the Christian doctrines that are important, like the Trinity, Incarnation, and the Atonement, were insulting of God's greatness. But I thought also that though God had once revealed the Bible, and the Quran actually refers to the Bible as God's Word, once it was revealed, it became corrupted to include all these sort of insulting doctrines. So I thought that the, the Quran had come to correct those corruptions. But what changed my mind was the Quran itself. It says in numerous spots in the cha fifth chapter of the Quran, in verses 46 through 48, it talks about how the people of the gospel, meaning Christians, should judge by what God has revealed in the gospel. And those who do not judge by what God has revealed are among the rebellious. Well, if the Quran is saying that the Bible is something that Christians should judge by unless they be rebellious, well, then how could it be, have been corrupted? How could it be changed before the Quran came? Because the Quran is then referring to a book that has horrible lies in it as trustworthy? Of course that can't be the case. And you find numerous passages throughout the Quran about this. So I began to look at, well, you know, I, I'm sort of a lawyer by training. And I went to law school and all that stuff, so I, I kind of knew how to find loopholes. So I thought, well, if the Quran forecloses the possibility that the Bible was corrupted before the Quran, maybe the Bible was changed after the Quran came, which is why they differ so much on so many things. But as you look at the manuscript evidence, and as you look at the, uh, all the wonderful things we're finding, I mean, day by day we seem to be finding earlier and earlier manuscripts that confirm our readings of the Bible. We see that not only was it not changed after the 7th century when the Quran came, but it was the same for the centuries before the Quran. So really I began to see this is a document that is trustworthy. It chronicles the life, teaching, and actions of Jesus of Nazareth. And I couldn't ignore it anymore. So I began to see that. That's really what started the whole journey, the veracity of the Bible. And then I began to see the evidence for the resurrection as something that really, truly happened. And that's important because Muslims believe that Jesus didn't even die on a cross. So if he didn't die on a cross, then he couldn't have been raised from the dead. Because you have to die first to rise, of course. The history was telling me something different. He did, in fact, die, and he did, in fact, raise. And if that's the case, then every worldview that denies the crucifixion and resurrection is false. And the only one that affirms it is Christianity, and that makes it true. And one worldview that I tackle in the book is secular humanism, which is basically the kinder, gentler version of atheism, but also one of the most influential. Other worldviews are the pantheistic worldview. So where atheism said there is no God and no supernatural, pantheism says... All there is, is God. We are all part of the one God. So that's a pantheistic worldview. Then you have monotheistic worldviews like Christianity and Islam, which believe that there's a God who is separate from us, who creates the universe, and has some level of interaction with that universe. So you have from atheism to pantheism to monotheism as the major worldviews that are out there. And the, the ones I tackle in the book are secular humanism, which of course is an atheistic framework, pantheistic thinking that range all the way from Hinduism to Buddhism to the New Age and Scientology in the West, and then, of course, the religion of my birth, Islam. Now, why is the 
knowing a person's worldview, the person you're interacting with, why is knowing their worldview a great place to start? It's a great place to start. Uh, great question. It's a great place to start because for two reasons, I think. One, based on their worldview, you'll know what the barriers are to belief because they're different sometimes. Everyone has emotional barriers. In fact, the prologue of the book, that's what I go into. How do we address these emotional barriers? For a Muslim and a Hindu, for example, they come from an intensely communal worldview, an intensely, uh, it's based on honor and shame, not necessarily falsehood and truth. So to them, betrayal of culture is the cardinal sin. So if you ask them to consider a counter worldview, like the Christian worldview, they might not want to embrace that, not because they don't find it true, because they find it shameful to turn their back on their parents. Whereas an atheist might not feel that way, but he might have personal barriers that deal with, for example, colleagues or even his own sense of sovereignty. Uh, and in the book, for example, I quote a couple of atheists, Aldous Huxley and Thomas Nagel, who at length talk about it's not really the evidence that persuaded them there is no God, it's their desire. I mean, Nagel goes on and on. Who's a, Thomas Nagel, who's a professor of philosophy at New York University, goes on and says, that it's not really the evidence, it's my desire. He says, I don't, ho I, I don't disbelieve in God and hope that I'm right. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be that way. Now, how do you deal with someone like that? You've got to know their worldview. You've got to know their barriers. So that's the first thing. The second thing really is find out what their central issue is. Because people cling to a worldview, not because it answers every question, although... I think that a good worldview will answer every question. It's that it answers their central question. What's the thing they care about the most? And so that's what I call the grand central question in the book, is that if you have a central question, you want to affirm something, you, you tend to gravitate to the worldview, you think answers it best. And for the Christian, I think that we can affirm that search. So for the secular humanist, we can say, what's your grand central question? We can find out what it is and then say, can I offer you the gospel's answers? Because I think it answers your question better than secular humanism does. Yeah, and I think that's a great approach. You know, instead of just presenting the gospel right away, it's often great to ask those key questions that, you know, everyone is asking about life and reality and why is there suffering and things like that to discover their answers and to really question their answers and then present a case that the Christian worldview presents, you know, some of the best answers. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we get bogged down in detail, which we should sometimes. Sometimes we need to drill down into the, into the minutiae in the detail. We do need to do that. But ultimately, if we realize that Christianity answers not only the minutiae, but also the big picture, we can cut to the chase in large measure with some of our friends who are skeptics and say, you know, what is your chief concern? And let me offer you the way the gospel answers it. Yeah, well... That's the title of your book, Grand Central Question. What are the Grand Central Questions that all people are ultimately asking? Mm. Well, there are, I think that ultimately every worldview, and everyone, everyone has a worldview. Even if you, don't have a, if you think you don't have a worldview, well, that's your worldview. <laughs> Central questions that people are trying to answer are essentially, how do we get here? Questions of origin. Why are we here? Questions of purpose. Is there a purpose to life at all? What explains the human condition? Or why are things the way they are? Why is there good? Why is there evil? Why is there misfortune? All these things. And then finally, is there a way out of this mess? So the questions, uh, the, the fundamental questions are origin, purpose, morality, and destiny. That's essentially the, the, the fundamental questions. Each worldview tries to answer all of them. And any worldview that doesn't answer all of them is not worth your time. But 
the major worldviews will center on and gravitate towards one central question. So for the secular humanist, the question is objective human value. For the pantheist, it's how to escape suffering. And for the Muslim, it's how to understand and worship God as great. How does knowing these grand central questions help Christians engage the lost world more effectively? Well, it, it does one thing uh, first, and it helps us to identify with those who are not Christians. I think Christians suffer from a bad PR campaign um, of not uh, being considered sort of judgmental and not understanding and not listening. If we understand the grand central question someone has, it gives us the opportunity to listen, to have them tell us what it is so that we can understand it. But it also gives us the opportunity to respond by affirming that question. I think sometimes we come across as a little bit judgmental and saying, look, your question isn't important. The answer is important. You know, the, someone always says, Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the answer. Well, someone says, what's the question? <laughs> well, we can know what the question is and offer someone uh, a gospel-centered answer when we actually affirm their question. It really gives people a sense of value that the Christian who is talking to them really values them. Yeah, that's a great point that you put out. We're so eager often to present our case that we don't listen or understand where the other person is coming from. And asking these questions, even if you may not know what the New Age is or what Hinduism teaches or what form of Buddhism or, or Islam they're coming from, just asking these questions can give you a good understanding of where that person's coming from and what they believe. Absolutely. And, you know, an additional benefit that comes from this is I think Christians are paralyzed sometimes by reaching out to their neighbors because they have a neighbor who's an astrophysicist and who's an atheist, and they say, oh, my goodness, he'll run circles around me and he'll you know, bury me in scientific jargon that I won't be able to understand. Or my Muslim friend has, is very serious about Islam, and I don't know a thing about it. Well, the point of, one reason I wrote Grand Central Question was to give Christians confidence that all you really have to know is your own faith, and then the one central question that the others are trying to answer. So I give plenty of detail, but if you focus on the central question, you can walk into a discussion with confidence that you can offer them something of value. Right, and that you're not always playing defense, but actually by asking questions, you're learning and actually kind of on the offense. And a lot of people from these various worldviews often have never been challenged on these kinds of questions, and it makes them think. That's a great point. I mean, uh, for me, honestly, uh, when I was challenging Christians, I got very few challenges back until years into the conversations I'd have with people, they'd actually say, well, let me ask you a question back. It was only then that I began to say, well, wow, maybe I should start thinking a little more critically about this. Now, I had some of my responses down, but the questioning me actually made me be introspective. Nothing is more effective than a question, and in fact, um, we have no better example than Jesus as the, as, the, as the supreme questioner of his questioners to get them to open up about what they were trying to see and ask and, and all that kind of thing. So you're absolutely right. It, it, puts, it, puts, it's, it's a, it's a, puts you on the offensive, but not in an offensive way. Yeah, that's very well stated. How do we evaluate a person's answers? I mean, how do we determine what are good and sufficient answers and which ones are lacking? Well, that's a great question. I think that, um, one, more questions responding to them does that. You'd be surprised, that, and I'm sure you won't be surprised, but people are often surprised by, if you ask somebody a simple question like this, how do you know? They will look back at you with a blank sometimes, or they'll fumble through it. And it isn't so much important that we understand that they lack a foundation, it's that they understand 
they lack a foundation. And a simple question like, well, how do you know that's true? Or I know you said that, but where did you get that from? Like, for example, if a Muslim says the Quran has never been changed, or if they say the Bible has been changed, a simple response of, how do you know? Really, when? You'll find out that they will fumble through it. And now sometimes they'll have detail, but sometimes they won't. A level of confidence can be examined there. And if we keep asking the, really, I'm interested in knowing more about how you know this, we often find out that people have not thought through their worldviews very well. So simple questions can do that. And then repeating the statements back to them sometimes can, can get us to understand the level of conviction they have, but also the level of depth of their thought. Because people oftentimes just parrot what they've heard. Right. And you also state a person's worldview should be coherent. It should answer the question, these big questions in a coherent and consistent manner. Yes. Oh, yes. Any worldview not only has to answer all these questions with sort of empirical evidence. So if you're answering the questions of origins, for example, how do we get here? And someone says, well, we just uh, popped into existence out of nothing. Not nothing, as Lawrence Krauss would say. Well, if he says we popped into existence out of nothing, and atheism says we, we are here by accident, but then the same atheist would say, we all have objective purpose. Well, that's not coherent, because we're here by accident. So how could our existence have a purpose? That's an incoherent set of statements. So you've answered one question completely contradictory to the way the other question was answered. So we have to challenge them and say, well, did you see the contradiction there? And help them through it, because if they claim we're here by accident, then they can't claim we have purpose. Right, and that's why I think your book is a great tool for Christians to engage effectively those from another worldview because when you ask these questions and they may for the first time be challenged on this and they may stumble or realize well my questions may not be all that good they'll mm -hmm. look right back and you and say well how do you know you're right or how would you answer that question it gives you a great opportunity to present your case for Christianity absolutely um, sometimes the best cases are made without saying a word you just literally make you, you don't make a statement you just ask a bunch of questions I can recall plenty of instances where I'm sitting across a dinner table with someone who is an atheist or a Muslim or whatever it might be and just by simply asking questions based on what I know they already agree on and say well how do you justify that given your worldview they begin to really think about it and open up and I've seen people really have changes of heart simply through the art of asking questions and then offering the gospel as an answer. We're talking about various worldviews here, and you said secular humanism focuses on what is the inherent value of human beings. Mm. Well, how does secular humanism answer this question? Well, it's funny. When you look at the, the, the various secular humanists who have stri striven to answer this, you, you see this incoherence that you and I were talking about just a, just a moment ago. Secular humanist manifestos, and, and secular humanists seem to love to write manifestos, and I quote quite a few of them, They'll just say it as a blanket statement. For example, in the Secular Humanist Manifesto 2, it says, human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. Well, I'm not sure that, that that's just tautological. That doesn't really say anything. It has meaning because we say so? Well, what if someone says it doesn't have meaning? And there's plenty of folks who have, who have said it doesn't have meaning. So a secular humanist struggles with this dissonance of saying we all have meaning, but uh, being unable to justify this. I mean, Richard Dawkins, for example, says that human beings are simply machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for living. Well, that's purpose, sure, but when we think of our purpose and our, and our dignity and our objective value, is that what you think of, just propagating DNA? Yet he's being honest. He's saying, look, there is nothing 
of actual value if we are just here by accident. And in the book, I, I point out quite a few atheists who will lament, and they'll say, look, this depresses me to say this, and I've looked high and low, but there is no morality, there is no objective value other than what we make of it ourselves, if there is no God. And yet they still want to say that there is value to us. So the answer is, if I can be so bold to say it, the answer is bad, because essentially there is no answer. You want to affirm it, but you don't give me a good reason to affirm it. You've had, for example, Sam Harris in his book, The Moral Landscape. He tries to talk about objective morality and value for human beings at a scientific level by saying that which is conducive to the greatest number of uh, people flourishing and the least amount of pain, that's called good. Well, that's fine, but why is human flourishing good in the first place? He's begged the question. He's never actually answered the fundamental question. We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of Pat's interview with former Muslim, Abdu Murray. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to team up with us, please start with prayer and then to donate, log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, please visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week for part two of this exciting interview with your host, Dr. Pat Zucran. Oh, 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 oh,